Father, we admit we're a lot like uh, those to whom you came, uh, that we wanted something different. Uh, Lord, we wanted a king who would uh, come in power and make our lives a lot easier. And um, Lord, we complain um, about how you have not come, but you have broken our expectations. And so, Lord, I pray you'd forgive us, and uh, Lord, I pray we would... Uh, embrace that a child has been born to us and uh, help us. Um, uh, would you uh, make our hearts like the good soil uh, that would receive your word and produce a hundredfold? Do this for your glory, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, so, um, some of you have been here uh, since we started this whole thing a little over four years ago. And uh, when this whole thing started a little over four years ago, uh, I had worked for the church for a couple years uh, out at Tate's Creek. I had worked uh, for a ministry called Young Life for five years before that. Before that, I had been in seminary, which seemed like forever. And, uh, and really, I grew up around the church. Some people are gym rats. I was a church rat. And uh, so, I, I've known, a, I've been around ministry my, literally my whole life. And... Uh, uh, and, and, you know, seen a lot, seen, um, seen a lot of hurt, seen a lot of uh, unhealthy leaders uh, who were called to serve a certain people really hurt them. I saw people who uh, leaders were trying to serve and inflict pain on the leader. I mean, it's just, and, and usually it's a little combination of both, let's be honest. And uh, a lot of times, I, I, as I was especially going through seminary and in my days with Young Life, uh, I, I would hear stories about this hurt, and I would say, gosh, well, you know, the pastor, if he had any sense, he wouldn't have gone to a crazy church like that. He should have known it was coming. Or I would say, man, if the pastor had any, any wits about him, I mean, he would have worked things out, smoothed things over a bit, and it would have been so fractured in the end. And really what I was saying is like, I, I, I'm going to do a lot better job than that, you know. And, uh, you, you know, and you hear about pastors who uh, tank, you know, tank their marriages, tank their family life, uh, left Jesus, and sometimes even took their own life. And I'd say, well, you know, they probably weren't called to ministry in the first place. Well, now, a little over four years in, I'm singing a really different tune. Now, I love being your pastor, but I can tell you, the last four and a half years have been really hard. You know, if you look at a picture of me four and a half years ago, I had a lot more hair than I have now. And so when it makes, when I hear stories like the one I'm about ready to tell you, it, it gives some perspective. You know, there's a story that I read about this week of a guy named Darren Patrick. Dan Patrick started this church in St. Louis called the Journey Church. You may have heard of it. And uh, they had thousands of people. They had six locations. It started in 2002. And in 2016, Darren Patrick, the pastor who started the church, he was fired uh, from the church. And the reasons were largely around his leadership failures because he was a great preacher. He had achieved a lot. The metrics indicated success on every level. But inside his inside circle, there were some major problems. So they fired him. A little over three years after he was fired, he did this interview in Christianity Today with a guy named Ed Stetzer. And he was talking about the problems that he sees that he had. And he listed three major ones. The first one was that he had become a very entitled person. He began to expect the privileges that came with his position. And he thought that he deserved them. He thought he had earned them for what he had done for the church. The second thing that he lists is that he had become very disconnected from the church. 
He said he was un- emotionally unavailable. He said he was holed up in his study, writing books. That he was out on the road a lot, speaking at all kinds of different things. And the last thing he mentioned uh, is that he was deceitful. He said he was always blowing off meetings. He was giving untrue excuses. He regularly lied about how he was doing emotionally, how he was doing spiritually. He talked about using anger and tears to manipulate other leaders to keep them from holding him accountable. And he said the bottom line really is this. My platform grew faster than my character. My platform grew faster than my character. He said his hunger for success and fame and power and influence led to something that was highly, highly destructive. And unfortunately, toxic leadership like this happens in all spheres of society, doesn't it? Not just in the church. You see it in a company about 15 years ago called Enron. Enron was a multi-billion dollar company that torpedoed because of deceitful accounting practices. You hear all the time in the news about how teachers who have sexually exploited their students. You hear about politicians who use their power unjustly. You see it when parents use their kids to meet their needs instead of love their kids sacrificially. All positions of power. And because of the fall, we all find ourselves in a world that's full of scandal, and much of that scandal is tied to the corrupt use of power. Now, some of us, we're we're victims of this unhealthy use of power, and we've got scars to prove it. But we can also unknowingly slip into patterns of entitlement, deceit, and unawareness ourselves. And this power dynamic is in our world, but it's also found in our text, and the Bible's realistic about it. Uh, So let's read it tonight. Uh, Matthew chapter 2, the first eight verses. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. And from you you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Uh, So two points from our text today. Worldly power, as we see it in Herod, and divine power, as we see it in Jesus. Worldly power. Let's look at Herod first. Uh, Herod really is a major player uh, in the nativity narrative. And Jesus is coming in its narrative And it's of utmost importance that we know who he really is in order to have an understanding of what happened in Jerusalem during those days. See, Herod was half Edomite and half Jewish. Edom was this nation that was just south of the Red Sea. It was southeast from Jerusalem. And he was half Edomite. And now he's serving as a client king, a client king of Judea, 
on behalf of Rome. See, he's a client king because he's kind of a puppet king. He's in Rome's hands. See, Rome is the one who's, they've got the economic, they've got the military, and they've got the political power. And instead of choosing a Roman to rule in this conquered land, Rome appoints someone from that region to rule on their behalf. And that's Herod. He rules from 40 B.C. until 4 B.C. And his whole tenure as king is one of ruthless ambition. He's more ruthless than all the other Herodian kings. There's eight Herodian kings. He's the first. And he overthrew the Hasmoneans. And so he was always looking over his shoulder to see who was going to come to get his seat. And he was a brilliant leader. I mean, he accomplished this great feat by overthrowing the Hasmoneans. He aligns himself with Rome. And, and he aligns himself with Rome means that he can keep all his competing forces at bay because he's got Rome's political and military machines to come in and defend him at any time. He's crafty. He wasn't always placating to the Romans. He was also incurring favor from the Jews. And for the Jews, he rebuilt their temple for them. He rebuilt their temple mount for them. And that's just a snapshot of Herod's leadership. And you can see how it's marked by intimidation. It's marked by chaos. But listen to his family life. He has ten wives. Ten. The oldest of those ten wives, he kills. He kills his, that wife's mother. He kills that wife's two sons, which included his oldest son. He was ruthless. And even Augustus, his boss's boss's boss, the emperor, the emperor of Rome, said that it would be safer to be Herod's pig than to be Herod's son. So when you slot all these events and this person of Herod into Matthew 2, you find that this happens in about 6 B.C., He's been ruler for 34 years. He's got two left. He's reached the height of his paranoia, the height of his cold-heartedness. And then you see this word in verse 3, troubled. Now you know why he was troubled. It's no surprise, is it? You've got the Magi. You've got these brothers who come in from Persia. These astrologer kind of guys, these eccentric folks, they come in and they say, hey, there's a newly born king. Tell us where he's at. Is this true? And Herod hears the word king and thinks, oh, here comes a threat. And he's troubled. He's agitated. He's disturbed. His insecurity comes out in full force. Because he knows. He knows that his hold on his country is shaky he knows that he's not the rightful heir to this Davidic kingdom. He knows he's a fraud. He knows the only reason that he's got this throne is because he's politically maneuvered himself into it. And for 34 years, he has perceived every person as either someone who's an alliance to form or who's an enemy to eliminate. And the Magi are perceived as the latter, an enemy to eliminate. So their announcement of a king who's, going, who's come to rule the Jews is seen as a threat by Herod. You see the anxiety that's rising up in him? Well, the Jerusalem did too. Do you see in verse 3? It wasn't just Herod who was troubled. It was also all those who were in Jerusalem. 
They know they've got a testy leader. They know the consequences that they would suffer if he's going to lose his temper. Herod's aligned himself with Rome. The Jews have aligned themselves with Herod. Therefore, they too are troubled at the coming of their Messiah. This word troubled. This word trouble in the original language has two uses. One is to, is to describe an inner state. The other is to describe what happens physically. Troubled physically or troubled as an inner state. As an inner state, it means this inward turmoil. It means to be stirred up. It means to be disturbed, unsettled, thrown into confusion. Troubled. It also could be translated as shook. To be shaken like a glass of water. Have you ever felt like you're a glass of water that's been shook? Have you ever felt like that's what your insides are going on? That's the way Herod felt this moment. He's unsettled. He's thrown into this state of confusion. And when you're thrown into that kind of state, how do you interpret your mood? Well, we usually interpret that by blaming something on the outside of us as the reason for our stirred up inner life. Herod could easily say, if people wouldn't keep coming after my seat of power, then I'd be super chill. It's very, very, very unlikely he would interpret his troubled state as something that he's to blame for. It's his insecurity. I mean, just think about it for you. In relationships, don't we usually blame the other person for the reason that our relationship isn't driving? Aren't we much more likely to blame our coworkers and our supervisors for our problems at work than to take a hard look at how we've contributed to the problem? See, just imagine. I mean, I don't have one up here, but I should have done it. Imagine I've got a glass of water. And I shook the glass of water and water comes out the sides, all sides of the cup. And I said, why did water come out of the cup? More than likely, you would say, because you shook the cup, Marsh. That makes sense. And in some ways, that's true. But the reason that water came out of the cup is because water was in the cup. See, I could shake the cup if it didn't have water and water wouldn't come out. And so when Herod gets shook, when we get shook, trouble comes out, irritation comes out, anger comes out, confusion comes out, because that's what's in our hearts. But what makes Herod so insecure? How did insecurity get into his heart? It's because he's grasping at power. Think about it. If we had a, if we had a videotape of this, these eight verses, here's what, here's what you would see. You'd see the Magi come at Herod. Herod, and then all of Jerusalem was thrown into a panic. Then Herod goes to the chief priest. He goes to the scribes, and he says, hey, is this true? Is there anything back there, you know, back there in the scriptures? I don't know them at all, by the way, but is there anything in there that talks about where the Messiah is going to be born? Anything in there that talks about stars? The chief priests and the scribes were like, oh yeah, that's, that's definitely true. That's right in there. And he, puts, he has the Magi set off in this other room. He calls the Magi back in. He goes, hey, sh- hey you guys, why don't you go to Bethlehem? And if you, if you find him, why don't you come back and tell me? And then I'll go worship him. Well, we all know that's not what he was going to go do. 
does that sound familiar to you? See, whenever we realize that control is slipping from our fingertips, here's what happens every single time. We get stirred up. We come up with a plan. We execute the plan. And then hopefully our grip on control has been restored. You don't need to be in a government position in order to have a need for control. Maybe the thing that has to be in control for you is your morning routine. Maybe it's your retirement account. Maybe it's your children's behavior. Maybe it's your weight. Maybe it's your diet. Maybe it's your workout resume. And when your control is threatened, trouble is going to come out of your glass and you're going to look like an insecure dictator a la Herod. So what's going to put Herod in his place? I mean, who can compete with this guy? This guy's been fending off threats for 34 years. He's the one who overthrew the Hasmoneans. Who can compete with that kind of power? Well, someone can. And the someone who does compete with Herod for his power is much stronger than Herod. It's God himself. Except God uses very different tools than Herod does. Herod uses fear and intimidation, uses political ploys, uses political alliances, uses manipulation. And God doesn't come in with the same tools, but bigger ones. He comes in with a totally different tool, and it's very unconventional. A vulnerable infant. That's his tool. And this is the way divine power works. Divine power defeats worldly power with humility. It's a really unexpected twist, isn't it? You've got the ambition, the strength, the strategy of Herod as being contrasted with the vulnerability of a child. And when you think about how God orchestrated all the details of Jesus' birth, it's almost like they're the polar opposite of the way Herod and every other worldly power would do things. Think about it. You've got Jesus, Jesus' mother. She's a young peasant. She's not part of a wealthy, noble, elitist family. Think about Jesus' earthly father, Joseph. He's unproven, and he's completely clueless. He's not some experienced community leader. Jesus is born in an insignificant town in a barn. He's not born in Jerusalem or Rome, and he's not born in the comfort of his own home. Then you've got his visitors. You've got this first group. You've got these magi, these astrologers, these non-Jews. And they're a bit eccentric. They're not well-adjusted Jewish religious leaders. And you've got the shepherds. And they're poor. They're not aristocrats. So see, if you were the campaign manager for Jesus, if I were the campaign manager for Jesus, would you have done it that way? If your goal as his campaign manager was that he would be remembered for at least 2,000 years and that the world would be a totally different place, would you have arranged Jesus' birth to be like this? 
Jesus' birth came with no political, no economic, no academic, and no social elitism. In fact, what happened at Jesus' birth is that Jesus exposed the superficiality of the world by subverting all of the world's power with his humility. And what we see in the nativity is that Jesus comes to those on the margins. Do you think you're on the margins? Do you think you're hopeless? If so, Jesus comes to you. Isn't that good news this Christmas season? That Jesus comes to those who are hopeless and on the margins? Well, yeah, that is hope for some of us, but for some of us, that's really bad news. Really bad news. Because we're not all that convinced that we're on the margins. We really do view ourselves as being towards the center of things because we've unknowingly, we've employed some of Herod's schemes, but in less sinister ways. So what should we do if we find ourselves in the center as opposed to the margins? Will Jesus come to those who are in the center? Well, think about Herod. Herod's power didn't last. Think about Rome, even. Rome's power didn't last. The only thing that will last is character. The only thing that will last is godliness. And when godliness begins to shine through your character, you're going to be placed on the margins. You'll be placed on the margins by those who have power. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 2. It's starting in verse 6. Here's what he writes. He says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age, like Herod, who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So you see, the wise of the world didn't understand Jesus' humble ways. And then Jesus was scorned. And then Jesus was eventually crucified. So we can be sure, too, that if we embrace Jesus' humble ways, we too will be scorned and then we'll be marginalized. So what Christmas does is it lays out a way forward for us. You can either find yourself in a humble estate. You can find yourself in a humble estate that you didn't choose. And if that's you tonight, if you know you're on the margins and you know that you're hopeless, you can be sure Jesus is going to come to you. You didn't choose this path, but this is where you find yourself tonight. Or... The reality is you see yourself as being in the center. And there actually is good news for you. You can choose to go to the margins. And you get to the margins because you begin to align yourself with a humble Jesus. And when you do, the world's going to put you there. And when you get put on the margins by the world, what you're going to find is that Jesus is there. Jesus will meet you there on the margins no matter how you get there. 
But there's one more thing. I said Herod didn't last, right? Well, in this Advent, what we're celebrating these weeks in December is leading up to Christmas. Is Jesus' second coming. And in Jesus' second coming, all the Herods of this world, the ones that are out here and in here, are going to be vanquished. They will be no more. And a new world will reign where humility wins the day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do await that day uh, when the powers of this world that hate humility, when they will be thrown aside. And our Good Shepherd, the one who leads us by streams of still water, will reign in glory and we will be with him forever. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.